If you are into geeking out about mushrooms, then this episode is for you. I am joined with my co-host Richard Vixinic for this very special episode with our wild and wonderful guest, Jeff Chilton. Jeff is a pioneer in ethnomycology who really needs no introduction within the mushroom space, but I'm going to do my best to do that for you guys here. Um, he's the founder of a company called Namex, which basically uh, produces and supplies all things uh, mushroom extracts for the health and wellness industry. So Jeff has a wealth of experience on cultivating mushrooms from an industrial uh, lens or an industrial background, if you will. And, you know, he, he is essentially the, the guy that's responsible for bringing shiitake mushrooms to the United States on a mass scale or within the mass market. So, um, you know, hugely important uh, figure, I guess, within this whole shroom boom that we're going to chat about in a minute. And why I am so excited to have Jeff here is because his passion for wild places and wild mushrooms, uh, we hold that in high regard here in this episode with all of us kind of geeking out about mushrooms again. So it was honestly just a uh, thrill to have Jeff in the studio. He actually is the the guy, and this is why everything, uh, the mushroom guy, if you will, and this is why everything for today's show notes is going to be over at rewildmybio.com slash the mushroom guy. Um, and as I mentioned, he really is the guy to someone like me. He wrote a book in 1983, which is the year I was born, co authored that book with uh, Paul Stamets, and that's called The Mushroom Cultivator. And I got links to that in the show notes. Um, why I wanted to make sure Richard was here with me, because prior to this episode, Richard was my mushroom guy. Now I've uh, crowned uh, Jeff as my new mushroom guy. So basically, I wanted to have Richard here because, yeah, Richard has looked into the uh, cultivation of mushrooms um, from a more of a, you know, medicinal standpoint or for to make medicine from, right? And uh, that's why I think it's an important conversation because, yeah, we talk about this kind of paradox or this dilemma that, um, you know, when you have love for wild places and wild things and then you see what can happen when a shroom boom or a rise of an industry overnight, you basically see, uh, you know, people cutting corners around production and you also see it very hard to actually compete with international markets and actually do things locally, which is something that, you know, Richard and I in the show is very much about. So I think it yeah, was a great episode because Jeff kind of, um, not kind of, but he really does have a passion for blowing the whistle on this basically the supplementation industry and how a lot of these health and wellness uh, companies out there that are making uh, mushroom compounds are basically, if I can put a cold notes on something we dive into very deep today, is that uh, within cultivation, we're looking f within a mushroom cultivation on a mass scale rather, we're looking at using these uh, Basically, they're like grain blocks or logs that are full, you know, either rice or say oats. And what's happening is from these logs, mushrooms grow. And that's what we ideally would think is in our supplements. But what these companies are doing is cutting corners and basically grinding up these logs. And in these logs, you're getting lots of like the starch into these extracts and capsules and all this stuff that we're thinking again because of slippery language on these nutritional labels and whatnot we're not actually getting what we think we're getting and i can relate to that within you know the kombucha industry and watching that kind of the kombucha boom kind of happen overnight and then of course people are cutting corners pasteurizing kombucha and all things like that so it's it's not uncommon within you know you see air quote science, and I really have to stop air quoting science. I've been doing that a lot, but the science pops out where something's supposed to be this new cure-all or super pill. And, you know, and then 
local communities because of free market economics um, or say let's areas that you know where this stuff might be grown wildly is now kind of bastardized and then taken to market and sold as the next super pill so jeff has a passion for true real mushrooms and again that's why i'm so grateful to have jeff on here so that's kind of a long-winded uh, way to introduce and kind of pay tribute to uh, my guests work here and again everything in regards to different uh, resources uh, are over at rewildmybio.com slash the mushroom guy and what else can I really say about um, today's episode I mean I do love that we picked his brain and we got really geeking kind of into the into the deep weeds about uh, different varieties of mushrooms with you know different compounds that are lesser known. And I know that just by saying that, I'm kind of creating part of that problem that I just mentioned. But I think what I like most about this episode is that we really do um, put emphasis on the medicine being the places that these mushrooms grow wildly, right? And, and the variety and the diversity of some strains and species of mushrooms and how like there's no one size fits all approach to this. So I think, I truly think that what we're doing here in this episode is saying, if you are looking for real quality mushroom products go see jeff and namex and and uh realmushrooms.com which is the company that uh jeff and his son created to is more of a direct to consumer avenue but um if, if you're looking for real real mushrooms you can go there but at the same time uh, getting into wild crafting and creating your own medicine um, from these or even just say developing a relationship with them and really truly learning about mushrooms um i mean it, it's if there are most mushrooms are quite harvestable in a sense for in a wild setting that is that um it's not like say like a patch of like wild leeks where it's possible that you could over harvest if a mushroom's growing that good chance there's a you know the mycelium is throughout whichever material it's decomposing and it's you know for the most part uh something that you can take and not have to worry about you know taking all of it per se but anyways i really do um like this conversation just for that and i think it, it makes this podcast with jeff quite unique um and again i'm going to link everything i'm going to put actually an addendum to this intro here and i forgot to ask jeff about this test that basically what you can do at home is with just some water some iodine and the mushroom supplements that you have you can actually test to see whether or not those may contain lots of starch and i would encourage you to head over to you know realmushrooms.com and take advantage of the 25 percent off discount that Jeff's uh, made available to any you know new buyers to the site, and what you can do is test their product alongside some of these other products that again are full of starch from the mycelium log that they're growing from. So um, yeah, check out everything there. Again, last time I'll say it, but rewildmybio.com/slash/the-mushroom-guy. Jeff's officially the new mushroom guy. Sorry, Richard, um, but a new king has been crowned. <laughs> Anyways, I've said enough here. I want to dive right into this episode, so enjoy it. Welcome to Rewild My Bio, a self-help and alternative health podcast. I'm your host, Sean Slade. Join me as I share stories, science, and strategies to help you rewild your biology and redefine your biography.
It is a honor and privilege to be sitting across, uh, zooming here with uh, my guest today. It's Jeff Chilton. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much for having me, Sean. I really appreciate it. All right, and I'm also joined here with co-host Richard Vixinic. Richard, welcome. Thanks for having me. Wouldn't miss this one for the world, Jeff. Really excited <laughs> to have you here. That's right. Great yeah. to talk to you, Richard. Richard is my mushroom guy, so I couldn't do this podcast, Jeff, without having the guy that I send pictures of uh, mushrooms when I'm in the forest. I send them to Richard, so um, I figure if you're like you are the you literally are the mushroom guy. You you wrote the book on mushrooms, and that was back in 1983. Believe it or not, the year I was born, as we just mentioned. Um, and so, yeah, you've done countless podcasts, and, uh, and your passion for mushrooms truly rings uh, it rings true to me. And that's why I'm excited to have you on. So, again, very, very humbled, and it's an honor to have you here. Awesome. Well, tell us first, then. Um, again, I just dated myself and told everybody that I'm 37, almost 38 years old. <laughs> so, you've been doing this for this long. Uh, tell us what got you interested in mushrooms. Well, because you're such a, a, a special group, <laughs> actually, uh, when I was in high school, which was in the 60s, I, I, I graduated from high school in 1965, went to university after that, but I actually had a friend that went to Mexico uh, in, let's call it the junior year in high school. He came back with these, these stories. He went there for summer school, came back with these stories about magic mushrooms. And I don't know why, but it just kind of like, wow, that's really interesting. And then when I went to university, look, it's the 60s. Uh, magic, anything was very important there. We were dealing with a lot of shamanism. And my study at university was anthropology, but we had a mycology department as well, University of Washington in Seattle. And, and you know, the Pacific Northwest is probably one of the best places in the world for wild mushrooms. So um, I put the two together uh, in what I call ethnomycology, where I was just studying the, the use of mushrooms as uh, food, medicine, and mostly for shamanic purposes uh, in my anthropological studies. So that was something that really interested me. And, and then, of course, once you're out of university and you're you looking for a job or something like that, well, what do you do with a degree in anthropology? Not a whole lot. So, so we have one mushroom farm at the time in Washington State. It's like 60 miles down the road in Olympia, Washington. My mycology professor turned me on to that. I, I went down. I applied for a job. Um, I got a job there. I was working at that, and a very large mushroom farm, working there for the next 10 years. I mean, so 10 years, I was literally living with mushrooms uh, in all their stages from preparing the substrates. And listen, we were preparing 320 tons of compost every week. <laughs> Think about the moving around those raw materials and the kind of machinery that we had there to do that. Our compost piles were six foot wide, six foot tall, and about 200 feet long. We had a machine that took two hours to go from one end to the other, turning that compost, which it needed to be turned every, let's say, three days or so, or else it would go anaerobic. So um, we would every, you know, and, and mushroom growing is on a, a, a cycle where you're, you're, in this case, it was a 90-day cycle from start to finish, let's say from putting the compost into the trays um, to ultimately 
the end of the crop and dumping that 90 days. So, so every week there would be eight different crops that went in and were thrown out. Every year I, I saw close to 200 different crops of mushrooms. And think about a, a normal fa- farmer. What do they see, 50 crops in a lifetime? I was seeing 200 different crops of mushrooms growing. And this was primarily agaricus mushrooms, but we had a Japanese scientist there, Dr. Uriyama, and he was uh, growing shiitake, oyster, and enokitake. I mean, my God, can you imagine? I'm on a massive agaricus farm, 2 million pounds a year coming out of the farm, but, but here we've got a scientist growing these other mushrooms. I was just like, totally stoked on that and so i also had a chance to work with him and and um you know we put the very first fresh shiitake mushrooms into the marketplace in 1978 <laughs> i don't know do you guys like uh, shiitake mushrooms love them yeah love them. oh sure. man you know can you imagine i'm eating fresh shiitake in the 70s <laughs> and amazing, and yeah. the amazing thing is that that the uh effort bombed because people were like, oh, these mushrooms are are too strong a flavor. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and I was like, what? And now we call that umami. <laughs> yes. Right? Yeah. Right. It, oh, I mean, shiitake. I love shiitake, the flavor, the odor. Mm-hmm. In, in China, they're called shanggu, fragrant mushroom. Beautiful. So, I spent the, the 70s on this mushroom farm. Um, during that period, I was able to go to mushroom conferences in, in France and I went to, I got a fellowship to the Dutch School for Mushroom Growers in 1976, where I went over there and learned the Dutch system and the Dutch, man, they are at the forefront of mechanizing mushroom growing. It is just amazing. Um, the other day, I was I was telling somebody every single mushroom you've ever eat is picked eaten is picked by hand. True, but the Dutch have been working on mechanical harvesting of agaricus mushrooms for years, um, and, and it was always for um, you know you'd have to let them grow up and mature a little bit to be able to cut them all off properly. Uh, but that was all going to the can. I just saw a video the, the other day. They've got it figured out. Now it comes off the the line and it goes in it. They're sorting them all. And I'm like, oh, my God, they've finally done it. That's agaricus, of course. Uh, but still, you know, again, the reason why mushrooms are, are relatively expensive is that, hey, uh, they're picked by hand. Did you ever go into the house, the mushroom farm there, and, and actually see what was going on? Yeah, I've been once as a kid. We went on as, as a field trip, actually. Uh, ah. yeah. And now one of my best friends actually is like the product manager there, believe it or not. So I've chatted with him in a few years past anyways about the whole process. And it really has changed a lot over the, over the years, throughout your time, without doubt. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and I was lucky because the farm that I was on had old... Uh, what they called uh, uh, mushroom double, which was like a big barn, uh, which was really the old school U.S. method of growing and European method to some degree. And then we had a brand new uh, system where we used trays. And then ultimately, while I was there, we put in even a newer system of uh, mechanized um, metal shelving um, and a completely different system of composting that was brand new at that point, but now is 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 quite 
Um, a lot more farms use that system. And again, it, it was a Dutch system. I see. Well, you know what? We're, we're, I like that we're touching on this cultivation piece because I know Richard um, has a story anyways in regards to how he's looked into, uh, you know, getting into the mushroom business and what exactly is coming in these supplements and things like that. So I don't know, maybe Richard, you want to kind of share your research into the mushroom business? Well, yeah, just listening to you speak, Jeff. Um, so yeah, I've, you know, I've been looking into cultivation of mushrooms on a on a personal scale for about a half a dozen years now just kind of really very passionate about mushroom picking in the wild working with them clinically because and we'll get into that in our in our conversation today about the benefits medicinally of mushrooms um, and really seeing how that you know really seeing the writing on the wall how that's going to scale up the, de the demand for these mushrooms is scaling up exponentially and in the next five years, I would imagine, or in the, at least in the last, next decade, I would imagine that uh, anyone who, for example, has had uh, any type of uh, cancer diagnosis will be considering these as part of their plan. So seeing that writing on the wall, I'm like, okay, and my passion for that, what can I do to sort of get my foot in the door? So probably on the back of some of your work, I went down to the States and, and got some know-how on how to set up my own little mushroom lab and do my clean technique and, you know, start from making my own liquid mycelium right up to doing my sawdust blocks, etc. And so I've been playing with that for the last five years, but it took me about a year and a half to really realize that I'm going nowhere with this <laughs> as a business, right? You mean I, like you may, you mean you're making $2 an hour, Richard? <laughs> yeah, it, no, probably negative 15 bucks. <laughs> Um, and really seeing the amount of work that would go into producing a sawdust block that gave me a pound of fresh reishi that would then dry down to like a eighth of a pound. <laughs> yes, I would make yes, no yes. money on this. And I realized no. quickly that I have to scale up really fast. And so there's yeah. that, that real almost need to industrialize it, which kind of also makes me bristle a little bit. Right. Um, but really, can we, can we kind of dive into um, how that, industry is emerging in North America and some of the encouraging aspects of that and some of the work that you're doing around that at Namex, which really to me is very exciting, um, but also some of the pitfalls. Sure. Well, first of all, the, the issue um, of growing mushrooms for, for food, I mean, at, hobbyists can start at a certain level and, you know, they've got their day job and, but they're doing it on the side and they're growing small amounts of, of mushrooms and, and, you know, they can scale that up to, to doing it, you know, have their own little mini lab. And so they're making the spawn and, uh, then cooking up and, and they're all doing this in pressure cookers and all this kind of thing. And it's very, you know, it, it's low tech, but it's great. It's appropriate for that kind of thing. But the minute you start to look at it in a commercial sense, what you realize is a, um, you have to, first of all, get to a certain point uh, and have a certain amount of mushrooms that you're growing to, to have any sort of real business. And, and that's the thing that is the most difficult because what that means is you're going to have to invest in some equipment because you've got to mechanize. You absolutely have to mechanize. And then you have to get up to a point where, where you are growing those mushrooms um, every week you've got X amount of mushrooms coming out because the store that you're selling them to is like, look, Richard, I'm giving you shelf space. We need to have your product there. And, and then the, the other thing that you realize is that growing mushrooms means you're a babysitter. 
you cannot leave that crop. It, it is always in some stage that you have to be there. Somebody has to be there to take care of it and harvest it. And, and that's the other thing you realize is as you're scaling up is, my God, I need an army to harvest these things. So, so I, I, I basically tell most people, look, I mean, keep it at a hobby level or something, but you try to scale this up and it's just not going to work unless you're prepared to actually spend the amount of money it takes to mechanize it. And that could be $100,000 to a million dollars, depending on where you want to go with it. But uh, again, it, it's it's a expensive proposition to do that. And, and the other side of that is that, look, medicinal mushrooms. Okay. Um, there's a reason why no mushrooms in the United States are cultivated and go into the medicinal mushroom market. And, and okay, small amounts for somebody who's maybe, you know, maybe like yourself, you're growing small amounts, you're doing tinctures of them. Yeah, there, there's people that do that. But, but the thing is, is that mushrooms are 90% water. So uh, supplements are dried powders. So if you get five dollars a pound for your for your fresh mushrooms, dry them out. Now you got to get fifty dollars a pound. The, the economics are just simply not there. So there's literally no mushrooms on scale going into the supplement industry. You absolutely can't do it ec economically. So that that's um, a stumbling block there. And and you know. Briefly, and we can get into it later, but that's the reason why there are companies in the United States that instead of growing mushrooms, they grow grain spawn. <laughs> they grow mycelium on grain, and at the end of the process, like, say, 30 to 60 days, and they've got a good growth of the mycelium, they will then dry it, grind it to a powder, and sell it as a supplement, sell it and call it mushroom. And, and then the issue ultimately is, and, and I've shown this through all my my studies and analyses, is that the product is still mostly grain. It, it's actually, they're just selling you dried tempeh. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and that's, that's what goes on because, again, because literally you cannot grow mushrooms economically enough to put them into the supplement market. It just, it just can't be done. And that's why that's why we grow all of our mushrooms in China. We process them over there. China grows over 85% of the world's mushrooms. I mean, mushroom growing takes an army of harvesters. <laughs> it's just like, no, it is not easy to get into that business and make it work. And, and only, you know, again, up at scale, can you get into it from a fresh market perspective but otherwise you'll be making literally two dollars an hour if you're lucky because uh, uh and don't quit your day job because it's just going to drain you and what happens is most people will will do that for a few years a few years and then finally go my god i you know i, I my whole life is in this thing i can't leave i'm babysitting these things and i'm not making any money at it and the store is giving me hell because I'm not delivering them every week like they want. And the restaurants are the same way. Hey, we put this on our menu, but where are the mushrooms? Right. Yeah. Well, I do want to put a pin kind of in that note on the uh, the supplementation aspect that you talked about and a lot of your, your work focuses on. So I think that's very important to know. Um, 
But what I want to ask, I guess, for listeners out there that might not even be familiar what a mushroom is, because we were chatting before about my experience living down the road from a rather large operation, and then Richard and I getting our hands dirty, growing mushrooms ourselves. But maybe explain to folks out there the life cycle of a mushroom and what exactly that fruiting body is that we see popping out of, uh, you know, out of tree stumps and things like that when we're taking a walk through the forest. Sure, sure. And, and, and this is really important because, you, you know, what we're talking about here is actually a fungal organism. And, and um, um, these, these fungi, mushrooms in specifically, they don't have seeds. <laughs> it's kind of like, well, how do, we, how do we grow these things? They don't have any seeds. Well, they have spores. Uh, we don't use spores, but let's just talk, start with the spore. The spore uh, is out there on the wind currents. It's in the air at all times. Uh, it the spores landing on the ground or on the wood, uh, landing on some organic matter. And when multiple spores uh, germinate, and when they germinate, they'll germinate into a very fine filament called a hypha. And when multiple of those hypha fuse together, they will form a network. That network is called mycelium. And the mycelium is the vegetative body of this organism. And the mycelium is out there, and it is essentially breaking down organic matter. It's part of this natural cycle that we have out there where we've got bacteria, we've got fungi, we've got bugs, we've got all sorts of things that are chewing up all this organic matter and repurposing it into humus, ultimately, and it's just part of the natural cycle. So while it's out there doing its work on breaking down these uh, organic nutrients, it's building up reserves of energy. And then when the fall comes or the season, wherever that happens to be, um, things all of a sudden change. The temperature goes down. Now we've got rains normally, which means the humidity goes up, up comes the mushroom. Now, my, there's a little, I have a little bit of a pet peeve here about fruiting body because People like to use that term fruiting body. A fruiting body, in this case, it's a mushroom, okay? Um, people talk about mycelium, but they never talk about vegetative body. So why are we talking about fruiting body? We're talking about a mushroom. So up comes the mushroom. It goes through uh, stages from a very small uh, uh, initial aggregate of this uh, hyphal mycelium. Uh, then it, it'll be a, a pinhead, very small little guy, and then it will develop... Uh, mature, uh, the cap expands, gills underneath normally, sometimes pores. Uh, that will be the spores will will then be produced. And now we're, we've completed this life cycle. And, and and so one of the things about being a mushroom grower is, okay, what is your seed? The seed is live mycelium. And, and that's what's kind of cool about this. It's live mycelium. Well, so how do, how do we get live mycelium as seed? Well, we get a culture of this organism, and we can do that either from multiple spores that we put onto a Petri plate and they germinate and we take different segments out of it and we grow that out, or we can just take a piece of tissue, which is the easiest way to do it, in sterile culture. We grow out the mycelium, and then what we have to do is we have to put that mycelium on a carrier of some type in order to grow it over that carrier, which becomes our seed. 
So, so in, in the initial days, they would just, um, before pure culture and things like that, they'd just be digging up that mycelium. Like if it was uh, agaricus, they'd be digging it out of the pastures and then planting it in similar materials or, or uh, somehow using that type of uh, natural materials as spawn. Or, or early when they wanted to grow shiitake, they would take a, a, shita- a piece of shiitake or a piece of shiitake gill. They'd make a cut into a log. They'd place it in there hoping that the spores would then germinate, infect the log. So those were the old school days, but uh, back in the 20s and 30s when they developed sterile culture um, at Penn State University in 1932, a man figured out, hey, let us grow out our mycelium on sterilized grain. Man, what a beautiful idea, because in a jar of grain, like a gallon of grain, you've got like, thousands of grains. You cover those with mycelium, and now you've got thousands of little seeds, so to speak. So you can spread those through your your substrate, in this case, a a compost, and you can get great coverage. Uh, and, And this is the key to growing mushrooms. You have to get your substrate colonized as quickly as possible. That's the the time when most trouble can appear because that's when if your substrate is not protected well enough, there's all sorts of other organisms, other fungi, bacteria, yeasts that are just waiting to jump into that substrate and consume it. So if you can get it colonized with that a particular mycelium from the species you're growing, once you've got it colonized, that substrate is pretty well protected for a period of time. So that's kind of like your real key area right there. Let's get it colonized and and grain spawn developed as seed was an absolute breakthrough. And that's what's so funny about today because, you know, anybody can grow grain spawn if they got a little small lab. Quite easy. You sterilize jars of grain. You throw a, a, a bit of a mycelium culture in there. It grows out. Voila, you've got grain spawn. Pretty simple. Simple to scale up as well. Doesn't cost like to, it, you don't have to have an army of harvesters to harvest mushrooms. You don't need a mushroom house. You just <clears throat> put it into a autoclavable bag, all that grain, sterilize it, inoculate it. And then after, um, let's just say, four to six weeks, it's colonized, ready to go as spawn. But uh, companies in the U.S. figuring out, I can't grow mushrooms cheaply enough to put them into the supplement market, just went, oh, well, well let's just take that and we'll grind it up to a powder and we'll sell it and we'll claim that it's mushroom or, you know, today actually one of the companies finally actually saying, okay, yes, it is actually tempeh that we're growing and claiming that there's magic starch in it. But the thing about it is, is no, this is a process that was developed for seed to grow mushrooms and it's being utilized to create nutritional supplements which end up being mostly grain starch and, and that's a travesty, unethical, uh, because they're calling it mushroom. And I've called that out and I've demonstrated in the analyses that I've done is that the most important compound that you want in a supplement, which is a beta-glucan, is next to nil in these products because the amount of mycelium, if, you, if you've grown grain spawn before, you know, okay, it looks really great when it's all colonized. You break that up and it's like, oops, <laughs> 
it's still mostly grain. Um, so that that's really the issue there. And our analyses have shown low in beta-glucans, very, very high in starch. You put those products out there. Mushrooms do not have starch. So why would a so-called mushroom product be so high in starch? All of the residual grain. Why is it low in beta-glucans? Small amount of mycelium, easily provable by analysis, yet these supplement companies are out there putting this into the marketplace, and you're just like, how are you allowing this? We even have an FDA compliance document from the 70s that says you cannot call mycelium mushroom. Well, this isn't even pure mycelium. This is myceliated grain. It's like calling an egg a chicken. Oh, it, you know, it, it is just horrible, and it's a terrible bait and switch because what they want to do, and this is one of the key issues why I hate the term uh, fruiting body, is because they will say, oh, our mushroom product is uh, mycelium, a uh, fruiting body, um, primordia, extracellular compounds. It's like you don't have a mushroom. That's not what a mushroom is. You can't claim that word and, and then say, oh, you've got a mushroom and here's all of the different parts of it. No, you don't have a mushroom at all. And, and so that's that's where the whole fruiting body thing comes in. Look, scientifically, fruiting body is a word for exactly that, but a mushroom is a fruiting body. You can't say, oh, my mushroom is all of these other things when it's not. So um, that's a really great recap in terms of it's just the basic processes, stages, and understanding of the growth of a mushroom, some of the challenges to doing that effectively and uh, efficiently in a lab or as a producer. Um, and we're getting a real good sense here of how maybe the market is skewing in a direction that is, you know, just looking to sell some stuff that isn't necessary. So calling it an egg a chicken, basically. Yeah. But let's, let's maybe put that on pause for a second and say, okay, if the mycelium isn't what we want it to be and it's mostly starch and we want that full mushroom and those beta-glucans and the triterpenoids and all that stuff, can we go into just talking about some of the general benefits of mushrooms from a medicinal perspective? Why is this market exploding? Why are we getting excited about this on a grander scale in the population? Well, you know, first of all, <clears throat> just to, to sort of initiate this in terms of the health benefits of mushrooms. I mean, I, I consider mushrooms like the forgotten food. Uh, uh, Asia and the rest of the world has not forgotten it. They eat a lot of mushrooms, and that's a standard part of their diet. And somehow in the West, we just ended up with one mushroom with very few people eating it, being the agaricus mushroom. Mushrooms, um, um, in terms of their nutritional value, um, 20 more or less 20% protein. The majority of them are, are carbohydrates, but they're very good carbohydrates like uh, mannitol, which is slow acting. And that's one of the beautiful things about it. It's uh, uh, mostly fiber. So you get a lot of fiber uh, in a mushroom. So it's feeding our microbiome as well. Uh, it's, a, it's a great food that I, I recommend. Everybody should put that in their diet and be eating mushrooms in a regular way every week. In terms of the medicinal properties, well, the most important compound in a mushroom is the beta-glucan, and that's got a tremendous body of research to back that up. And the beta-glucan is part of, um, the, it's, a, it's a polysaccharide, and it's a, 
uh, structural component, it makes up 50% of the cell wall in a, in a mushroom. 50% of the cell wall and the beta-glucan in these studies, basically they've indicated that these beta-glucans will hit receptor sites that we actually have in our lower intestine. It's really interesting, the, the, the whole, it's kind of like, why do we have these receptors for, for beta-glucan specifically? That's, you know, there's speculation about that, but we have these receptor sites, the beta-glucans uh, when we supplement or whether we eat mushrooms too, we'll hit these receptor sites. And then what that does is that um, they can stimulate the production of different cytokines and uh, NK cells, helper, helper T cells, macrophages. And the way I, I look at mushrooms, and I think the way you, we need to look at mushrooms is that they are a keystone for preventive medicine. In other words, in other words, look, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever read any any um, some of these. Um, responses to people on Amazon or something about the mushroom product they, that they just bought. No, I just arrived and, and uh, a good thing because I've got a cold coming on right now. I started taking them and uh, the next day it was gone. It's like, no, that's not how mushrooms work. You know, mushrooms are there in the background. They're not an aspirin, an ibuprofen or something like that. It's kind of like taking a vitamin in a way. You, you take it, you, you're not saying, oh man, that vitamin D or that vitamin D I just took, it feels so good. <laughs> you know, so these beta-glucans are, are really the, the foundation for the health benefits in mushrooms. And every mushroom will have a little bit different beta-glucan profile. And that's what's kind of interesting because the beta-glucan essentially has different architectures. So why do we focus on these 10 specific mushrooms as being our primary medicinal species. Well, it's primarily due to the structure of those beta-glucans, which they've determined in the research, are active and more active than certain other species. And, and, and it's interesting because I have a book called The Icons of Medicinal Mushrooms that comes from China. They've got 270 different species listed in there as having medicinal benefits. Well, so many only because all it takes is one or two papers and then they'll put it in there. But functionally, and when you look at what's been used in traditional Chinese medicine, where I start, uh, traditional Chinese medicine and just traditional use of mushrooms, okay, what mushrooms are they actually using there? Oh, okay, I, I get those. And then I, I go, okay, what's the scientific basis for their use? Is there a body of scientific information? And so once you put the two together, you see, okay, reishi, shiitake, maitake, turkey tail, there's a body of research that demonstrates, whether it be in vivo or in vitro, or in certain cases, um, we have some clinical trials, then that's what, basically for me, I'm going like, okay, it's pretty clear that these are the medicinal species that are active and are um, uh, good for supplement use, rather than saying, hey, I've got uh, 30 or 40 or 50 different mushrooms, that, you know, which one do you want to try, or let me put them all together, or something like that. And speaking of putting them all together, the worst products in the world, the worst products on the marketplace are those products that have 10 species, 16 species, 24 species. It's, you know, those products that, that are in the supplement market where it's like, we've got everything you'll ever need in this one jar. All you got to do is one scoop a day, and you're there, and it's like, that's the worst possible kind of product, especially in the mushroom world, because every time you add another species, the amount of the 
truly active species goes down. So you just keep diluting and diluting and diluting. And the funny thing is, is one of the most popular products out there in the, the market is a, a product that has 17 different species in it. And, and it's just kind of like, why? Well, marketing. And people think, oh, more is better. <laughs> it's, just, it's just absolutely not. But at any rate, it, the beta-glucans are the key. And then certain mushrooms have other compounds that are also very interesting, like the triterpenoids in, in reishi or the triterpenoids in chaga. So those are compounds that we also measure. And, and those compounds do not occur in a mycelium type of product. And, and you know, the, the interesting thing about even talking about mycelium is that when those companies have to talk about mycelium, they go, oh, there's so much research on mycelium out. See, that kind of proves that I'm on the right track. Well, pure mycelium, excuse me, that's what the research is based on, pure mycelium, which does have certainly beta-glucans and certainly can create certain compounds. But when you put that on grain and your product is mostly grain, you're talking about apples and oranges. So it just doesn't compute there. But back to uh, uh, these uh, compounds. So we've got triterpenes. One of the beauties of triterpenes is that that's the key, really, to me in terms of quality control of reishi mushrooms. Man, um, the triterpenoids, I can measure those with HPLC. I can demonstrate the amount in there. I can use that as a marker. I can guarantee to people that they are present. It's the same with chaga. We can analyze chaga for the important triterpenoids in, in chaga. And triterpenoids um, have been shown to have a lot of different benefits, but primarily for me, there's something that are helpful to the liver. And, and that's something where in China, they've used reishi a lot for liver functioning and dysfunction. And that's what I sort of tell people, because, you know, here's the other thing that, that really I think is important. There's research that will tell you that mushrooms and different species have 100 or 200 different benefits. And they, the research has shown it does this, it does this. And, and, and so people will say, oh, it's a panacea, or look at all the things that it will do. Man, I do not like that kind of thinking. It is just like, look, I think it's interesting. That's what's called um, drug development and, and drug research, because that's what they, they do. They take some kind of natural product and they extract it and then fractionate, 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 test every fraction to see what, what it might be good for and see whether they can develop a drug out of it. You know, the thing is, is that for me, I, I think there's two or three, maybe four benefits that you would talk about for any uh, specific mushrooms, but don't go beyond that. Don't, don't start talking panaceas. It's like, I don't know if you've ever looked at the internet and looked at what people talk, the, the people who sell chaga are saying, my God, all of a sudden chaga is the king of mushrooms, you know, and there's really literally nothing that chaga won't do. And I'm just like, oh my God, stop doing this. This is terrible. I, I've seen four kings in my lifetime. You know, it was shiitake in the 70s. Then in, then in the 90s, it was reishi. And then in the late 90s, it was maitake. 
and now it is um, Chaga. Sky and I decided that we're going to start promoting Lion's Mane as the new king. <laughs> I believe uh, Richard here is uh, called Turkey Tail, the new Chaga. I know he's he's quite well known for uh, hyping Turkey Tail around here, and we're trying we're trying to make that stick. So I don't know. It's like the dandelion of mushrooms, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? And Turkey Tail is a very interesting. Uh, mushroom. There, there's no doubt about it. I'm, I mean, you know, there there have been drug products that have been produced from specific uh, Basidiomycete mushroom species. Turkey tail is one of them. PSP in China and PSK in Japan. But look, let's be clear. Um, they're used as an adjuvant for standard cancer treatments. They're not going to cure anybody's cancer. So. You know, that's the other thing I'm very clear about with people is, look, don't look at these as a cure for something. Look at these as something that is going to help you and your immune system to ward off disease, to kind of protect you. It's like a shield in a way. And that's what you really have to look at. And, and you know, I have spoken to people on the phone who've called me as far back as the 90s and said, you know, I've got cancer, and somebody said, mushrooms, can you help me? When you talk to those people, the last thing that I would want to do is sell them grain starch, for God's sakes. It's just uh, unethical. Well, yeah, back to the compounds, I guess, of some of these mushrooms. There's um, interesting stuff with, I, can, I can't say it properly, ergosterol. 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 Think, think of uh, ergo. Ergo. Ergosterol, ergosterol. Right. So what I find is interesting there is that you can actually get vitamin D from mushrooms, I believe, if that's correct. So they're actually able to absorb energy from the sun. So, I mean, I, I think it's interesting and in why we're, I mean, what I'm trying to get at here is that there's so many similarities between humans and mushrooms. You commented earlier even on the, the kind of psychedelic uh, era of the 60s, and we're kind of seeing a psychedelic renaissance now. So there's something there. I don't, I mean, it might be part and parcel to your work throughout the years and, and you know, talking on podcasts and, and influencing guys like me who put it in their kombucha. But what, I guess, specifically, what um, what might be different between, say, wild varieties and this cultivation that we're seeing now with a rise of industry? What are these medicinal properties, I mean, still attached if we're even having actual mushroom um, rather than just, say, you know, uh, fermented oats and what have you? Is there a difference, do you think, or what would you what would you maybe say here? Well, well first of all, let, let me just address the whole issue of cultivation. I, I, I like cultivation a lot because one of the things that, that one of the things that's really interesting is that when you're wildcrafting, and, and I I love wildcrafting crafting on a personal basis. I do not like wild crafting on a commercial basis because it always ends in tears. No way around it. So uh, on a personal basis, uh, uh, wild crafting, I like it. But one of the things you have to remember is that, that a um, reishi mushroom grown here, let's just say in BC or grown in Ontario or grown in somewhere else, these are what we would consider different Strains. It may be the same species, but because of, of where it is grown locally and what it's growing on, it will have developed a different genetic set that, that it has. I mean, I mean, you do a, a genetic test, it will be the same, but basically it has different 
enzymes and things like that that it's growing and and uh, um, so it can produce different levels of the active compounds and we've seen this very clearly in reishi mushroom and I, I saw this in a presentation back in 2000 uh, or 1999 by a Taiwanese scientist who had 10, 12 different reishi mushroom cultivars tested them all for triterpenoids one to twelve percent Think about that for a minute. One to twelve percent. Now, now a couple things happen when when you see that. One of which is okay. Um, what do I want to grow? And and two, if it's one to twelve percent, and scientists are doing work on reishi mushroom and they haven't characterized the material that they're utilizing. How can I uh, essentially recreate what they're doing if I'm using a completely different reishi mushroom from a completely different place? So, so it becomes really important, and that's where cultivation comes in. In cultivation, uh, we want to, in a sense, get a standardized strain that has the characteristics that we're looking for and, and growing it in a, in a somewhat standardized manner, always on the same substrate, so that ultimately we know exactly what we're growing and what we're selling. And, and, and it's important for uh, the medicinal mushroom because, again, a different cultivar is going to produce a different levels of the active compounds. Now, that's not so much so when it comes to the beta-glucans, but with these other compounds, it is very, very important. And, and you know, I bring that up, first of all, from reishi, and, and we've tested lots of reishi mushrooms and ourselves, and we're always testing the cultivars that we're using because that's the raw material that we use for our extracts. So we need a, a profile that fits with what we're trying to deliver people. And, and so with, in terms of a reishi mushroom, we want something that has a higher level of triterpenoids because they've shown to be beneficial compounds. We don't want a reishi that has no triterpenoids. If we wanted that, we'd be, we would be um, utilizing uh, a, a Ganoderma sinensis, a, a black reishi that's very common in a lot of the Chinatowns in major cities and, and in China itself. It's wild-crafted and black, but it has almost no triterpenoids, just like the uh, a Ganoderma out here, a Ganoderma aplanatum. Uh, almost no triterpenoids. Uh, Ganoderma oregonense. Uh, back there you have Ganoderma suge, um, and you do have some lucidum back there, which is really cool. And those two species may in fact have reasonable levels of triterpenes, and you'd, you'd know that pretty much if you were to chew on them a bit and, and go, oh, wow, this has got some good bitter flavor to it. And then you go, okay, yeah, we, we've got triterpenoids. But the standardization of the cultivar is important, and I just... This, this is so interesting because we're doing um, <clears throat> basic research all the time in terms of <clears throat> that very topic. We just completed uh, research with a Japanese scientist who's a, a mushroom scientist who's been doing it for a long time. Part of, our, part of our project with him was testing our lion's mane for hericinones. And in lion's mane, there's a, a, a number of different compounds that are responsible for the, the uh, <clears throat> stimulation of what's called nerve growth factor. And that's why uh, you've got a lot of people looking at lion's mane for what it does 
for the brain and working for either dementia or memory or things like that uh, in the mycelium and pure mycelium. They have a compound called the arenosine uh, in the, the mushroom. They have these hericinones. So he has two standards using and using a, a machine called a uh, LCMS MS, which is a very high quality, sophisticated uh, machine. He tested um, two different um, actual lion's mane mushrooms that we sent him from different locations, and then he tested extracts of those. And it was really interesting because the lion's mane and the amount of these hericinones was really varied. It went from um, um, somewhere around... <clears throat> Oh, 200 and, oh wait, about 500 micrograms per gram to upwards of, of 2,000 micrograms per gram. A huge range in the raw material itself. Now, if, if I'm somebody that's, that's wanting to, to um, sell a product to people and have a reasonable level of these compounds, that's super important for me to know because that's what I'm basing my extracts on is that raw material. And so, so, and, and I had no idea that lion's mane, I thought, okay, lion's mane, you know, okay, reishi's one thing, but lion's mane, hericinones, you know, come on, not at all. And then he also showed me a paper from Korea that where they tested 18 different strains of hericium arenaceus and, 16 of them were wild and two of them were cultivars and it was from 0.1 to uh, 7.0 and some of them had none well my god <laughs> it's like you know and, and that's kind of the the point where for me it's so important to have a chemical profile uh, and to have tests where I can test them for what are considered the active compounds. And we don't try to build those up or anything, but we want to know that they're there. We want to see a profile so that we can we can test every single batch that we make. Does it meet the profile that we want to have in that to at least guarantee to our customers that they're getting the active compounds and not a placebo? It's so very, very important. And again, it gets back to the cultivar. And normally, look, if, if you're a mushroom grower and you're doing, you're in strain development and cultivar development, what's the number one thing you want? Well, you want high yield because, you know, you could be a great strain and you go and you plant it and you start to grow it. And it's like, oh, my God, I'm not getting hardly any mushrooms out of this strain. Other strains are like growing like crazy, but some of them, no. High yield is number one. And also just the basic characteristics and, you know, is it is it sort of compatible with cultivation conditions and so on. But high yield, number one. That's not what mushroom, you know, in terms of medicinal mushrooms, well, okay, sure, we want our, our growers to be able to, to have high yields, but we also want to know that the cultivar that they're using has got high levels of the active compounds that we're looking for. It sounds like you really have to be prepared to get into the weeds and, you know, do your homework if you're going out and looking for, uh, you know, supplementation or whatnot. Um, and at the same time, it sounds like to me that it's kind of uh, – it makes it more, uh, I guess, if you really want to get into mushrooms, getting out and doing some wild crafting yourself and getting out 
and foraging and whatnot, or even maybe buying some spores and doing your own mushroom logs. Like, because again, the demand that seems like is being placed on this industry, um, there's these ethical concerns for folks that might want to really truly connect with the, say, the essence or the spirit of these mushrooms. You might not necessarily always find that um, out there in, in this day and age in, in this industry. It seems like. And I want to piggyback well, it, that piece. Sorry, Jeff. I just want to piggyback no, that piece in terms of. So I'm coming at it for myself personally from a perspective of. Um, my relationship with being out in the bush and wildcrafting and all that goes with that, that connection piece, the finding the mushrooms, getting excited, harvesting them, bringing them home, preparing them, eating them, all of that. And then on the flip side, clinically, if, I, if I'm working with someone who wants some support in, say, their cancer diagnosis and we want to work with some mushrooms... Yeah, then I've got to think a little bit more with that other hat that you're talking about here in terms of the standardization. And so for me, it's really about how we're developing a relationship to mushrooms. And on this show, we talk consistently about nature connection, rewilding as our relationship in terms of deepening our relationship with nature and earth. And so part of that healing in my perspective is what relationship do we have with these mushrooms? Is it just a pill we're popping that's a panacea that's going to fix everything, but we really don't have any connection to it? Or are we really building a relationship with it, making our teas, using it in our stir fries, maybe taking a supplement here and there that has a degree of standardization to it? And so developing a relationship so it becomes part of our day-to-day. It's not like the aspirin that you take when you get this condition A take this now, right? So it's really about building connection and integrating mushrooms into our lifestyle, really. I, I You know what? That, that resonates with me 100% because normally in, when I'm talking about mushrooms in general, the first thing I tell people or, or the last thing I tell people is, look, put mushrooms into your diet. Make that part of your diet that's so important. And then that's where I think you build that relationship that you're talking about because most people... Uh, are not going to be able to forage for a mushroom, let's say, for medicinal purposes. or And, and if they want them for, for edible purposes, they'll mostly do their foraging at the marketplace. But, uh, you know, I, I certainly encourage people. And, and in terms of, I mean, look, I love getting out in the forests around here. I, I mean, to me, you know, uh, for you guys as well, I'm sure, it's like going to church in a way. You know, you're going out. I live on a piece of property that's old growth. I have trees here that are 500 years old. They are, you know, I was I was out yesterday just sort of like at the foot of one of these trees and just kind of staring up way up into this thing. And it was it's just so incredible to be around giants like that and, and to be in a, a forest setting where you could you could really even say you know this has been here for forever <laughs> it hasn't ever been really touched by human hands in the sense of chainsaws and all the rest this is just as natural as can be and, and you know their their settings obviously they're not virgin forests that you walk out through there's other you know we're walking out in other um, wild environments but I totally get that i mean and and i just feel like establishing those relationships and establishing relationships with the earth and and that's what's missing these days i mean my god um look 
people walking around with their face in a cell phone. Uh, I, I, you know, for me, that just does not compute at all. And that's why, you know, frankly, I, I, I've got a small little flip phone that I bought a year ago. <laughs> after finally my son saying, you got to get a phone. You, and, and, you know, after, you know, because I, I'm like, look, I don't need to be, ha you know, people get a hold of me wherever I'm, wherever I am. And, and I don't need to be using it. But these days, if you go into a city or something, you kind of need a phone to call different things. So, and I travel a lot and, and I, I, it's hard to travel without, you know, <laughs> without a phone. I use mostly email for all my communication. And, and, you know, it's just that it's just for me, I just see the phone has been an incredible, especially the cell phone intrusion into our culture and into people's lives. And, and it's not getting any better. It is getting worse because we have generations that have grown up since they were three years old with this uh, smartphone in their hand and it is so addicting and, and uh, so so for me you know th that's taking people out of the wilderness taking them away from their connection to the earth uh, it's like the fact that we have to have um, field trips from cities just to go out and see how plants are grown things like this it's like where does your food come from oh I don't know. Well, let's go. We'll take a field trip out there. I mean, it's one thing to take a field trip to a mushroom farm, which nobody's ever seen and is really unique. It's another where people haven't even really seen vegetables growing or something like that. And how many generations are we away, uh, away from the farm? My grandparents, one set of them, were farmers. My dad had enough of it and went to university and never looked back. Um I sort of broke that and, and kind of went back to a kind of farming with mushroom farming. And I, I'm in the country. I grew up in the city, but I, I live in the country because I want to be next to nature. To me, that resonates very deeply. And we have to really guard against that connection being broken, which it is. And technology is just yanking people away from that connection and and in a way that helps the overlords harvest more of our precious environment out there. Because if people aren't connected to it, they don't really care. They've got their smartphone and that's where they live. And then they live on Facebook and all the rest. And it's like, man, who has time for Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or all of that? I don't know. I, I, there's almost more species of uh, social media than there are mushrooms. <laughs> Speaking of that, I'm, I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about some of these um, less famous mushrooms that your company works with, like Poria, for example, or Chamella. Can you talk a little bit about those? Well, you know what? Uh, Poria is kind of interesting because Poria is actually a sclerotia, which is a hardened mass of mycelium, and it grows underground um, and it's used extensively in China in all sorts of formulas because it actually acts as a diuretic and, and that's primarily its place in traditional Chinese medicine and and we sell very little poria very because it doesn't really have you know it doesn't have a lot of uh, research behind it on other things although although it may be like a, a lot of these mushrooms where there is research on 
different attributes of it, but primarily in traditional Chinese medicine, that's how it's been used. And, and so it's very popular over there in terms of putting them together with other herbs. And again, that's traditional Chinese medicine. And some people out there are into that tradition in terms of creating their own formulas and so on. And I'm not that familiar with the TCM. Uh, I know a little bit about it, but not enough to speak to it. Um, the other one, Tremella, <laughs> Tremella is, is so interesting because it's like this gelatinous flower. It's really, really cool. And it's because of that gelatinous nature, it has um, hyaluronic acid, which has been used a lot for skin treatments. And I, they've used Tremella in a lot of skin type products in Asia and beauty products and things like that. And, and so we have some customers that use it for those uh, activities. And, 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 you know, the fact is, is that, that each mushroom has sort of certain attributes, let's say, that, that companies key in on, and that's where they find a, a market for the particular product. Because for me, look, um, if, if, Primarily, we're talking about mushrooms for their immunological activities. Well, how many are there before you start saying, well, this is just like that? And, and you know, so it's like, why should I use shiitake instead of maitake? Or, or why should I use turkey tail instead of, you know, there's all of these things that come up. And that's why I really feel like um, unless you're really specialized in TCM or something like that and can put certain species into a formula where it makes some kind of sense, to me, that's why, you know, 10 species, I think, is what we sell. And, and I think that's kind of what I call, you know, more or less the top 10. And, and even at that, we've got a few that are kind of sleepers in a way. You know, the funny thing is, is that Lion's Mane, five years ago, I think I think we probably sold uh, 100 kilos in a year of Lion's Mane. Uh, last year, I think we sold maybe 10 tons of Lion's Mane. And it's just like it's just like I mean you're talking about dry powder, ten tons of dry powder, and, and when you think about when you think about the actual amount of fresh mushrooms it takes to make ten tons of of let's just say okay sometimes we have what we call a one to one, sometimes we have an eight to one, eight kilos into one kilo of extract powder. So so it's just it's just really crazy how all of a sudden lion's mane just jumped out in the front, and you know what really drove that was the fact that there's this this category called nootropics and everybody's looking for something that can enhance their performance and oh enhance my mental performance i'm all for it they say and let me have what is it let me have it i want it and, and so lions made us fit into there you know it's kind of like the whole thing now with psilocybe and, and this whole thing out of silicon valley kind of like oh yeah we're taking lsd in small amounts to stimulate our brain powder and we're taking uh uh, we're microdosing and psilocybe to to do the same thing, and you know, so lion's mane kind of came out of that whole nootropic idea. And and you know, I, I get it. I drink coffee in the morning. That's why I can just keep talking and talking and talking and never stop. <laughs> yeah, nice. That's a secret. You got to put some more chaga in that coffee. <laughs> yeah. Right? Well, actually, I'm glad I'm glad you brought up lion's mane because, as I mentioned prior, I'm uh, trying to finish a PhD right now, so I've, I need some extra mental performance whenever I can get it. <laughs> yeah. So, exactly. Right. So lion's mane, I've been keen on, and probably part of the reason why you've uh, increased in tonnage there. But uh, yeah, I've I've tried a bunch of different lion's mane supplements. So I guess my question to you is, on that note of 
developing a relationship with other plant species or other fungi rather, um, what other types of varieties are out there that might have similar benefits to say lion's mane? What what might have the, the BDNF and the NGF or even other psilocybin varieties maybe that you you know of that might have have this compound? Well, well, you know, actually they've uh, shown that there are um, some Ganoderma species that uh, produce uh, or, or will stimulate nerve growth factor. Ganoderma, there's another mushroom called the tiger milk mushroom uh, that's fairly unknown out there right now. I forget the actual genus and species. Um, and, and it has these, these compounds. So there are a few other mushrooms. And, and look, I think as they, maybe as they start to do more and more um, analysis of mushrooms and at, once they find these compounds, it may be that some of them occur in, in various mushrooms that we don't know of yet. And, and um, you know, that's why I always think there's, there's, there's going to be certain sleepers out there. Like one of the sleepers right now, I think, is Felinus. Felinus is a polypore, big, hard conch. And and it's got a lot of good research coming out of Korea on it, and it's pro and it's primarily uh, anti-tumor type of research, but it looks really strong in terms of activity. I think that's going to uh, um, end up being something in the years to come that people will look at. That that's one of the species that we have and we sell. That right now, I mean, we don't sell hardly any of it. It's just kind of certain, um, you know. Um, like naturopaths or others that are creating their own. We don't have any really big company that is buying Felinus and putting it into because basically for the bigger companies, they want something where there's a buzz about it. They, they want the lion's mane. They want the cordyceps. They want something where people know it. They're not, they're not willing to get out in front. They, they sort of lead from behind the bigger companies do, you know, and you cannot imagine, I mean, we, we've gotten inquiries from the biggest companies on the planet uh, and they, they're like, you know, drink companies and, and they're essentially like, oh, we've been looking at the, you know, the refrigerated case and look at all of these cool drinks out there. We need to get into that now that they've developed a market, you know, yeah. so I've that's been how, there, yeah, been there definitely with I, the case of, with kombucha, without a doubt, you know, you, you kind of, a little part of you dies when some of those big companies call cause you can, perhaps, <laughs> perhaps what might happen to, uh, you know, these, these things, but, uh. No, well, you know what's interesting? Let me just speak to that for a second. I'll tell you my kombucha story, which is like I, I first saw kombucha, I think, in 1991. And somebody just brought in a little, you know, kind of pint jar that had this, you know, the big uh, um, basic yeast growth, I'm assuming, that was floating on the top of it. And, and you know, I just kind of looked. He said, hey, have you seen this mushroom? There's this new mushroom out there. And I'm like, mushroom? That's not like any mushroom I've ever seen. And, and you know what was interesting about it back then is that it came with a reishi mushroom-like story. And, and that's what ultimately, you know, people love stories. And, and so all new products have to have a very good story behind them to introduce them into the marketplace. And the kombucha story, oh, you know, back in... Siberia or somewhere, and they've been using it for hundreds of thousands of years, and, and it's just now escaped, and, and we've got it, and we brought it out through multiple customs officers and all the rest. You know, I mean, there's just that story behind kombucha. And, and the funny thing is, is that, you know, I, I kind of like, you know, tasted it, smelled it, and just kind of went, okay, yeah, that's kind of interesting. But 
I, I wasn't too interested in it. And because, you know, it's like, it's not a mushroom, it's something else. And, and, and you know, there's multiple microorganisms in that jar working away. And, and you know, I was kind of like, you know what, that's great on a local level, pass it around and all, but I don't want to get into something where there's multiple different types of microorganisms working together and getting the right ones all the time and all the rest to produce this. And and so in the 90s, it's kind of funny. You see smaller companies with their kombucha to where now kombucha is such a, a, a big thing to the point where now we actually sell some of our mushroom extracts for mushroom kombucha. Oh, yeah, right. For sure. No, I've, I've explained many times over that uh, kombucha is not grown with a mushroom Without a doubt, um, yeah. So I guess well on on the uh, the note of other mushrooms, I mean we we touched a little bit on psilocybin uh, mushrooms, but the, and and you had mentioned the microdosing aspect. Are there companies out in the West Coast? I understand there are a few different companies who are now actually creating compounds with things like turmeric and ginger and whatnot in uh, along with like small like point zero five like grams of uh, of of psilocybin essentially. What do you think about them lifting red tape and doing research on these things for mental health problems? Well, I'm happy that prohibition is ending because, look, um, you guys have not been um, exposed to it, but I've got multiple friends that have spent time in prison and jail for um, whether it be uh, cannabis or mushrooms. Um, and it has ruined many, many people's lives besides just being very expensive if they ever have to go to court or something like that. But it was a horrible thing to go through prohibition. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, that's one of the beauties of being in Canada. My sons never had to worry about going to jail if they were around pot or pot smoking or anything like that. You know, it just wasn't happening. And so to see prohibition finally being lifted, starting with cannabis uh, and, and now all of a sudden to see research starting back up again with uh, uh, psilocybin and other psychoactive compounds. I'm really encouraged about that. And I think it's like, yeah, they, they shut it down back in the 60s and stopped it when, in fact, we could have been so much further along had we allowed it to continue. Because I think in terms of mental health issues, addiction, end of life, my God, psilocybin itself has got tremendous potential there. And um, it's interesting talking about microdoses because there was just a paper that I was sent that basically was a study on microdosing. And they, they basically were giving, you know, I think it was a, might have been a clinical trial too where they had a control group. And, and ultimately, uh, it turned out that, that um, it didn't really have any uh, effect outside of being a placebo. And, and I think the, the, you know, the issue there is that it, microdosing is kind of like, okay, so what is a microdose? Is it, um, you know, 50 milligrams of mushroom powder, 100 milligrams of mushroom powder, 500 milligrams? Where do you have to be to be a microdose and really get the effects of it? And, and I was talking about this with a friend of mine recently. And, and you know, his, his basic thing was, look, people doing microdoses are just kind of afraid to do a real dose. <laughs> and, and you know you know and I, I get the idea that people are like you know because this is something that's been talked about in the past even with uh terence mckenna where he's speculating okay people taking these things early on they they reached a certain point with this where all of a sudden they had mental acuity uh, uh 
and, and uh, their hearing was enhanced and all of this. So for a hunter-gatherer culture, this had many, many benefits. And, and I get that. I, I think that's uh, interesting and I can imagine that. But I think with microdosing, what, what I would say is, is you, you have to get yourself up to that threshold level where, where oh, wow, yeah, I really feel this. <laughs> and, and then at that point, you can back it off if you want to. And take it down a level because you're going, oh, yeah, that I feel that and yeah, I'm not really stimulated to sit at my computer and work. Instead, I'd like to just kind of go outside and hang out with a tree, um, you know, and, and again, just just kind of reaching that threshold, not into a full blown trip, because if you're just looking for that mental acuity thing, well, yeah, try and get it up to that point. And probably for most people. And, and again, this is the this is the issue with all supplements and all of these types of uh, of uh, plants and uh, fungi is, um, you know, somebody who's uh, 50 key weighs 50 kilos and somebody who weighs 100 kilos, well, they're going to have to take different doses, right? They're going to have to find out. You can't have a standard, oh, yeah, everybody, if you take 100, 100 milligrams, it'll be great. No. So you find that place and then, then you can kind of back down to the point of where you might feel that it is helping you on some level. Maybe it, maybe it will, maybe it won't. But I, I do think, and I, I'd have to agree with my friend that, um, for one, I think there's a lot of, of people who are taking it and he, he, he looks at it as like, okay, it's very trendy. Oh yeah, I, I'm microdosing, aren't you? You know, this yeah. kind of thing. And, and I think it, it has kind of gotten into that kind of space. Oh gee, I hear so-and-so who was uh, taking small amounts of LSD just came up with this amazing breakthrough. Right. Maybe I can do it too. Oh yeah. Well, I appreciate you saying that because I think it really does sound like you have to, again, science is good and standardization is good, but you really do have to uh, work on your relationship with these different plants and, and fungi, right? And I think that's the most important thing and, and not just a one-size-fits-all panacea again. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, the, the key thing for me is just I, I you know, as, as a, a company and as a business is, is I, I just want to be absolutely certain that I'm providing people with something that is what I say it is and what the research says is is what where you'll get the benefits and why you'll get the benefits. I don't want to be selling a uh, rice powder. Right. I don't want to be uh, misrepresenting what I'm selling to people. Um, if it has benefits, that's great. Uh, I have no control over that. I have no control over how much a person's going to take or how much a company that I sell it to is going to put into their product. There's so many companies out there that are doing what we call in the industry fairy dusting. Oh, yeah, it's got this reishi uh, beverage out there, reishi cola, and it's got like a tiny amount of extract in it, right? But they've got the name there. And, and, and maybe as a food, as a food, oftentimes you don't even have to put the amount of it that you've got in there. As a supplement, at least you normally have to put the amount of the particular ingredient, but as a food, you don't. Right. No, it's, it's important to know, and I, I think it's just like much nutritional science out there, uh, from place to growing season, uh, there's so many different variables that affect what is in each one of these, you know, if you're turning it into a supplement or if it's just something you're taking home and putting in the stir fry. Uh, there's so many different variables at stake. So again, just developing a relationship. And then again, the more times we're less distracted by technology, and we actually start to learn about the wildness around us. We actually want to protect it rather than just all the passwords for all of our social media channels and, and whatnot. Oh, right? yeah, absolutely. And you know what? Look, you know, I, I'm cultivating 
and and we cultivate it all and and I'm a proponent of that and the, the the thing is is like I'm not necessarily a proponent of wide scale cultivation which is destroying the natural world <laughs> not not at all right. with mushrooms the beauty of growing mushrooms is that you're using waste products you know and and strangely enough you're using waste products from agriculture and forestry sawdust and straw and these kind of things but you're converting those waste products into a valuable food and ultimately when it breaks it down i mean breaking down the cellulose in straw or in wood ultimately turns that into something that is much better for the soils ultimately so that's what i love about mushrooms is there's something that actually is repurposing organic matter and that's one of the things that I took away from 10 years on the agaricus farm where we're making all this compost. It was just fascinating to see this process from golden straw into dark brown rich compost uh, that we would feed to our agaricus mushrooms. It was just a, a, a incredible experience. Well, Richard, I don't know if you have any uh, final remarks for our guest. Do you have any uh, you want to touch on? No, I mean... We could be here for about a week, I think, <laughs> right? talking. Uh, I agree. We'll have to do it again. Just, just let me know. But it's, you know, yeah. again, I, I really appreciate the fact of, uh, you know, you guys and your knowledge. So that's wonderful for me. Yeah, and it's been it's been good talking to you and getting your perspective um, and where the industry is going, where the industry has come from, uh, how we can take a little bit of our own personal ownership of our relationship to mushrooms, and just thank you for all the work you've done over the years and. Uh, keep drinking that reishi tea and you'll keep immortal and we'll see you in a, about a decade how's that sound right yeah 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 I, I certainly hope so i mean you know it's interesting because they do have some studies out there where they they basically looked at different populations and and tens of thousands of people and said hey the, the population that says they eat mushrooms uh, are living longer than the population that says it doesn't and, and, and you know i i tend to go along with that i think uh Fungi are just a really important food, and, and mushrooms, eating mushrooms is is important for people to get those into their diet. I really totally believe that. Well, what I'll do is I'll link a whole bunch of stuff in the show notes in regards to the supplementation industry, the white paper that you wrote, um, everything you'll be able to find at rewildmybio.com slash the mushroom guy. Um, you're officially the mushroom guy here on this podcast, Jeff. No, It's no longer given to Richard oh, that man. title. You're now the new king. Uh, here on the Rewild My Bio podcast for mushrooms. The king Sorry. of mushrooms? Yes. Oh, you, my God. It's you. Um, but no, again, thank you so much for all the work you do and your passion and how that comes out. I do want to ask you one final question that I ask all guests, and your answer can uh, – it doesn't have to stay to our conversation here in regards to mushrooms. It can branch out to wherever you think it needs to go. But my question for you, Jeff, is what is your wildest dream for the earth? What's my what? Wildest dream for the earth. Oh, uh, my wildest dream is that that we would stop this path to urbanization and people would go back to the country and live a much more natural life, much more connected and and just kind of stop this whole uh, path to a virtual world. <laughs> which is basically what is happening. We have to get back to the real world, and, and that's what I really am hoping that we can do. That's the only way that the planet is actually going to survive, and 
So that's really where we have to focus is just, uh, and, you know, stop consuming everybody. You're just consuming too much stuff. Yeah. Two, two really good points there. I uh, thank you for that. And I mean, grateful for this technology and its ability to help us connect and share this message with others. Um, if Richard and I ever get out on a plane and head out west there to BC, I would love to come and uh, do some mushroom foraging with you out there. That would Absolutely. Be, that would be yeah. a dream come true without a doubt. So yeah, again, I will link everything in the show notes. It's at rewildmybio.com slash the mushroom guy. Um, and everything as far as Jeff's work, Namex, their work there, and uh, realmushrooms.com. Uh, we're going to link everything there. And we will actually have a, uh, there is a 25% discount for any first time buyers. So please check out the website and everything on there. And please, if you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave a rating and review as that will help other people find this episode. Thanks very much, everyone, and stay wild. Thank you for listening to the Rewild My Bio podcast. Please subscribe to the show and leave a five-star rating if you have enjoyed this episode. I have so much gratitude for all of you who continue to share this show with your friends. It really does mean so much to me. If you want more content from Rewild My Bio, then please check out rewildmybio.com to find previous episodes and sign up for the newsletter. In the newsletter, I share blogs I have written and reflections from my current health promotion research. Please follow along on Instagram and Telegram with the handle at rewildmybio and on Twitter at Sean Slade. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, stay wild.